You're listening to the KBU Evening News. This is a volunteer-produced newscast, and we encourage your participation. Call us with your breaking news stories at 503-231-8032. Our production team for tonight's newscast is Ray Bodwell, Al Khan, Kanan Schlesinger, and Jenna Yokoyama. The producers are Lisa Loving, Kanan Schlesinger, and Jenna Yokoyama. Special thanks to Free Speech Radio News, Allison Sayway, and you, all of our KBU News listeners. Our engineers, Wesley Sayway. The KBU Evening News and Public Affairs Director is me, Lisa Loving. A podcast of this newscast is available on our website at kboo.fm slash evening news. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at KBU News. You are listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM. I'm Lisa Loving. And I'm Kanan Schlesinger. Coming up tomorrow on KBU at 7, it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman and Juan Gonzalez. At 8, it's Wednesday Talk Radio with host Jacqueline Keeler. Call in and discuss the need for a united front against corporate domination. At 9, on political perspective, students from Portland State University and inmates from McLaren Youth Correctional Facility come together to learn about the role of music in social change. At 10, Chris Andre hosts Air Cascadia. At 10.15, it's Flashpoints, your daily news magazine with Dennis Bernstein. And at 11, on the Recovery Zone, Author Susan Engel discusses her recent book, The End of the Rainbow, How Educating Happiness, Not Money, Would Transform Our Schools. Thank you so much, KBOO members, for your generous support. If you're not a current member, you can become one by going to kboo.fm and clicking on Donate. That is the evening news. Good night, Lisa. Love you, man. Love y'all. Thank you. KBOO Community Radio is currently hiring for the following three positions. Station Manager, Evening News and Public Affairs Director, and Director of Underwriting. To apply to one of these positions, send a cover letter and resume to hiring at kboo.org or bring or mail your resume with cover letter to 20 Southeast 8th, Portland, Oregon, 97214. Please answer the following question. Why is KBOO important? Open until filled. Interviews will begin around December 9th. No phone calls, please. KBOO Community Radio is an equal opportunity and affirmative action employer. Women and people of color are encouraged to apply. For more information, go to kboo.org. This KBOO program is made possible in part by KBOO Foundation members and a grant from Radio Cab the transportation choice of Portlanders since 1946, with service 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Radio Cab has a mobile app that allows you to book a cab with your phone, available at the App Store, Google Play, and at radiocab.net. Or, if you prefer, you can talk to a real person at 503-227-1212. This KBOO program is made possible in part by KBOO Foundation members and a grant from Portland's Gay Directory, providing a resource guide of openly gay-friendly businesses, organizations, and services since 1996. New smartphone app available for all iPhones and Droids. For more information, you can visit gaypdx.com. This is Judy Berry from Earth First, and when I'm in Portland, I listen to non-commercial community radio, KBOO Portland. No compromise in defense of the truth. We all were challenged 
to think about how women were experiencing things, how immigrants were experiencing this hate. I, like so many other people, had this sucker punch because we wound up with Donald Trump. I know. How the hell did that happen? I hate to say that Donald Trump <laughs> unified us in that way. Whatever it takes. If we are a movement about love, saying good morning without the disrespect, without the hatred, is kind of disarming in some ways. <laughs> Welcome to This Way Out, the international LGBT radio magazine. I'm Greg Gordon. Israel's chief rabbi calls for homosexual executions, gay arrests, alarm activists in the Ivory Coast and Turkey, and it's the dawn of the Donald. Believe me. Those stories and more this week now that you've discovered This Way Out. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. With News Wrap, a summary of some of the news interaffecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending November 19th, 2016. Israel's chief rabbi, Shlomo Amar, told the newspaper Israel Hayom this week that Jewish law requires what he called the cult of abomination, homosexuality, to be punished by execution. He described same-gender sexual attraction as a lust, as with any other kind of lust, that could and should be resisted. Rabbi Amar is the leader of the Sephardic Jewish community in Jerusalem, for which he receives an Israeli government paycheck. He previously called the Holy City's annual LGBT Pride Parade an embarrassing phenomenon and condemned the parade's desecration of God's name in Jerusalem. Several members of Parliament have written to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to complain about the rabbi's most recent comments. Three wrote a joint letter demanding that a public figure that puts Israeli citizens' life at risk using incitement and exclusion should be immediately fired. Opposition Meretz party leader Zahava Galon wrote on her Facebook page that Rabbi Amar can cover himself in the Torah as much as he wants, but we hear his darkness, not the Torah. The time has come to stop paying for his salary. The BBC reported that Israeli LGBT activist Shirley Kleinman has filed a formal complaint with the police, accusing Rabbi Amar of incitement to murder. As she wrote on her Facebook page, let's try and ensure that this man will not remain in his key public position. Israel Hayom itself reported that another complaint charging incitement has been filed by Oded Fried, formerly the head of the nation's leading LGBT advocacy group, Agudah. I call on law enforcement and elected officials who hold the power to act without delay, he told the newspaper, to prosecute to the full extent of the law anyone who calls for harming people on the basis of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Two men were each given three-month prison sentences for public indecency in the Ivory Coast earlier this month. Gay sex is not against the law in the West African nation, but public indecency is. Despite its reputation as a relatively tolerant place in Africa for LGBT people, Homophobia runs deep in the country's culture. Amab ransacked the Abidjan headquarters of Alternative Côte d'Ivoire, a leading national LGBT rights organization, in January 2014. Several gay men were reportedly attacked and forced to flee their homes in June, after U.S. embassy pictures circulated in social media showing them signing a condolence book for the 49 people killed in Orlando's LGBT Pulse nightclub massacre. Frank Amani 
advocacy director for Espace Confiance, a group that provides health services to sexual minorities, told the Associated Press this week that it's the first known case of gay men being prosecuted under the country's public indecency statutes. He said the two men, aged 31 and 19, denied having a sexual relationship. We are revolted by what is happening, Amani said, and by the judgment that was given. A Turkish LGBT rights activist and lawyer was arrested this week in Istanbul, along with other members of his HDP political party, as part of an ongoing crackdown on dissent by President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Levant Pishkin was arrested at his apartment in the early morning hours of November 14th, soon after he visited the imprisoned leader of his pro-Kurdish HDP, who was jailed last week. The HDP is the only major political party in Turkey with pro-LGBT policies. Some of Pekin's belongings were also confiscated, including his computer and phone. Over the past few years, according to a report in the English-language Armenian Mirror Spectator, the high-profile human rights activist and attorney has suffered constant harassment. A bomb attributed to Turkish nationalists recently went off in his garden. President Erdogan sued him in March 2014 for insult, slander, or heavy provocation of a public official for their public service, for which he was fined the equivalent of 3,700 U.S. dollars. The Observatory for the Protection of Human Rights Defenders, a partnership of international rights groups Pishkin has represented, announced on November 16th that he'd been provisionally released pending the end of the investigation. He has yet to be charged with a crime. In other news, organizers of the annual Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras Parade have let it be known that Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull is no longer welcome. He became the first sitting Australian PM to attend the parade earlier this year, though he didn't march in it, but he won't be invited back in 2017. The disinvitation was approved this week at the annual general meeting of the Mardi Gras Board via a motion offered by Cat Rose of Community Action Against Homophobia. LGBT activists have condemned both Turnbull's failed marriage equality plebiscite and his gutting of the queer support of Australian Safe Schools program. He announced soon after the plebiscite proposal failed in Parliament that his governing coalition has no plans to address the issue of marriage equality, at least in the near future. We wanted to express our disgust at his prime ministership as a community, Rose said, and to say that we don't need his phony friendship. The official motion reads, The annual general meeting of Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras does not believe that a prime minister who denies us equality should be welcome as an official guest at our parade. Twitter has been percolating with both pro and con reactions. Some thank the board, while others call the declaration counterproductive, petty, or small-minded. The Guardian newspaper noted that the vote was non-binding. Elsewhere, jailed transgender U.S. Army Private Chelsea Manning is hoping President Barack Obama will commute her 35-year prison sentence before he leaves office. The whistleblower, considered a patriot by some and a traitor by others, was responsible for the greatest leak of intelligence material in U.S. history, some of it disclosing unprosecuted war crimes by the American military in Iraq. She tweeted this week that, I ask POTUS for time served, a first chance to live out of prison as a woman. Manning has attempted suicide twice since July. The first came out of a deepening depression over being in a male military prison and not being allowed to present as female. The second attempt took place last month while she was being punished by solitary confinement for the first suicide attempt. Manning's supporters have launched a petition that asks for her release. It says, Chelsea is a woman in a men's facility facing ongoing mistreatment. Her life is at risk and you can save her. The petition at whitehouse.gov also claims that, 
Chelsea has already served more time in prison than any individual in United States history who disclosed information in the public interest. Her disclosures harmed no one. The petition needs 99,999 signatures by December 14th to get a response from the White House. Ellen DeGeneres has received many accolades in her life, starting with her brilliantly brave coming out in real life and as a lead character on her TV sitcom in 1997. She's hosted the Academy Awards twice, along with other national award shows, all to great reviews, and has ruled U.S. daytime TV since 2003 with her multi-Emmy winning talk and entertainment show, Ellen. And on November 22nd, she'll be awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom at a White House ceremony by Barack Obama himself, the last chance he'll get to host the event as president. It's the highest civilian honor a person can receive in the United States and is presented to individuals who have made especially meritorious contributions to the security or national interest of the United States, to world peace, or to cultural or other significant public or private endeavors. DeGeneres joins 20 other distinguished honorees, including Diana Ross, Robert De Niro, Lorne Michaels, Cicely Tyson, Tom Hanks, Bruce Springsteen, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Robert Redford. And finally, Boston-based True Colors Out Youth Theater, the nation's longest-running queer youth theater group, received the National Arts and Humanities Youth Program Award this week from First Lady Michelle Obama. As The Advocate reported, it was one of 12 honorees and the first LGBT organization to be so honored. Abe Rybeck is Executive Artistic Director of Theater Offensive, founded in 1989, which created True Colors, not connected with Cindy Lauper's charity of the same name, in 1994. Ryback told the news magazine that, When we started doing this, using the words queer theater company and youth in the same sentence made people bristle. Now we have a chance to get a hug from a first lady who has done more for our community than any other first lady. It's hard to imagine, he added, what the White House atmosphere will be like for the groups that win this award next year. That's News Wrap for the week ending November 19th, 2016. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Michelle Marie Gilkison. And I'm Wenzel Jones. You're listening to This Way Out, brought to you by you. Your charitable donations keep this program on the air. We've produced some special CDs to say thank you to our supporters, featuring queer history, LGBT music, and behind-the-scenes looks at relevant movies and TV shows. You can also now get CDs of our regular program by subscription, and be sure you never miss a week of This Way Out. For all the details, please visit our website at thiswayout.org. Ladies and gentlemen, the next president of the United States, Donald Trump. It's hard to figure out whether one is watching a bizarro world version of The Apprentice or The Bachelorette. Then you remember that this really is the first week of the transition into power of U.S. President-elect Donald Trump. As Trump holds auditions for staff and cabinet positions, the LGBTQ community already has deep concerns about three announced appointments. 
former Breitbart news editor and fringe right champion Steve Bannon as the president's chief strategist and senior advisor, former segregationist and confirmed homophobe Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions as his attorney general and retired and discredited Army Lieutenant General Michael Flynn as his national security advisor. The name of vehemently anti-queer William H. Pryor Jr., who's called for gay people to be jailed, has been floated as a possible Trump pick for the Supreme Court. The most painful result of the election returns, however, has been the dramatic rise in hate-related incidents, from pro-Trump graffiti on vandalized black churches to swastikas on the dorm rooms of Jewish college students to an increase in the already horrific harassment and violence against transgender people, the Southern Poverty Law Center reports over 700 incidents since 11-9. Meanwhile, San Francisco's public school teachers have been offered a classroom lesson plan to help one of the most diverse student populations in the country deal with post-election anxieties. The Associated Press reports that social studies teacher Fakra Shah wrote it for her own classes and didn't expect it to be sent by the teachers' union to its more than 6,000 members. Local Republican officials have vehemently condemned it, but a district spokesperson said only that the lesson plan is optional and not part of the official curriculum. It doesn't mince words. Let us please not sidestep the fact, part of the plan's introduction reads, that a racist and sexist man has become the president of our country by pandering to a huge racist and sexist base. We can uplift ourselves and fight oppression here at school, even if we cannot control the rest of the country. Brace for impact. What does the Trump victory mean, and where do we go from here? For This Way Out, I am Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. Michelangelo Signorelli is a well-known activist, a serious radio show host, and author of the painfully timely titled book, It's Not Over, (laughs) Getting Beyond Tolerance, Defeating Homophobia, and Winning True Equality. And he joins us by phone from New York City. All I could really come up with as an opening question was, how do we keep our heads from exploding? (laughs) <laughs> I, I think that um, grieving, which I think a lot of people have been doing, uh, is very important. But I think it's time to really pull out of that and get fired up and really fight. And I think that keeps you going. I think that keeps you focused and, and um, realizing that there's another day. I think a lot of us do feel that way. Okay, I'm going to do something, but we're so used to doing things from the privacy of our, you know, telephones and computer terminals that we're kind of at a loss for what would actually be the best use of our energies. And what are your thoughts about that? I think the protests have been amazing. I mean, for a time in which, as you just said, people are so used to being online and and doing activism there – to see these numbers of people in the streets across the country 
uh, has really been invigorating. And I think it's important for people to get out and, and do it. And it's not contesting the election or saying it was rigged or anything like that. It's people saying this was not a normal election. It was a hate campaign. We cannot tolerate that. I think it's so important that uh, Donald Trump and the Republicans know that people will mobilize very quickly and that we will be a force. And I hope what comes out of the protests is also a movement uh, that goes into politics uh, that creates candidates and and uh, really helps to challenge the Republican Party in the way the Tea Party uh, <laughs> did with President Obama, although they were kind of an astroturf-created movement. Uh, this is a real movement of people on the streets, and I think uh, it really can become something big. How long, though, doesn't doesn't the people on the streets thing have a, a certain lifespan? I mean, you can't flood the streets with protesting people every other week, can you? Can you? Well, I think I think you might have to. It really depends on what we see moving forward. People probably will, uh, I hope, uh, start getting together. And I've, I've been reading some uh, accounts of getting together and sort of trying to create something else out of this movement that's grown on the streets that, as I said, is more political. But I think once they see something, like, for instance, the naming of Bannon, uh, Steve Bannon as a White House aide, or if we see any movement on uh, immigration or LGBT rights or anything that is detrimental, I think people really need to be able to uh, get back in the streets again. I think it really does show a force. Is it me, or are we seeing, perhaps a little late in the game, this concept of intersectionality that has kind of existed in very political circles and in academia kind of coming to fruition, like people are seeing that it kind of doesn't matter what your personal issue is. Um, We're sort of all in it together. Am I being kind of naive and optimistic about that? No, I think that's true. I I hate to say that Donald Trump (laughs) unified us in that way. Whatever it takes. But it certainly is true because I think we all were uh, challenged to think about how others were experiencing things, how women were experiencing things, how immigrants were experiencing this hate. It, it just, everybody was challenged to think about it and to think about people for whom it does intersect in that way uh, and, and for whom, you know, they are threatened in a variety of ways. And I, I think now that we see the hate that is being generated, we see that the hate is also equal opportunity. Um, LGBT people are being attacked on the streets. Uh, you know, even though Donald Trump didn't make such hateful pronouncements, uh, the people who are attacking uh, Latinos and African Americans and yelling white power, they're attacking uh, queer people as well. Donald Trump puts on a show, and the show he's putting on about LGBT rights has been that he says the words, he said the term LGBTQ, he even said on 60 Minutes, oh, marriage is settled. Of course, it's as settled as any of the judges he puts on the Supreme Court think it is, and every one of them is an extremist <laughs> that mm-hmm. will, uh, he believes, overturn Roe v. Wade, so I don't know how they wouldn't overturn marriage. He's trying to put out this idea that he is somehow somewhat pro-LGBT. We have to dismantle that. Mike Pence is set to be the most powerful vice president uh, in history, uh, and that's according to what Donald Trump's campaign has said throughout. 
and now he's running the transition team and stacking the transition team on domestic policy issues with uh, anti-LGBT activists. And, you know, it's all the little things. People should forget marriage equality. It's like a trap that people get stuck in. It would take years on putting two people on the Supreme Court to overturn marriage equality. But in the meantime, they can make um, same-sex marriage a second-class kind of marriage. They can pass the First Amendment Defense Act, which allows mm-hmm. for clerks like Kim Davis to turn away gay couples. Just like they what's happened to the abortion rights since Roe v. Wade. That's right. And it's all the other stuff that the Obama administration has put in place throughout all the agencies, anti-bullying programs in schools that are funded by the federal government, uh, health programs for LGBT people funded by the federal government, um, the transgender uh, student directive to the schools. Uh, Mike Pence already said that was going to be dismantled, that they would defer to the states. The federal government shouldn't be telling the schools what to do. All of those agencies, Health and Human Services Department, Education Department, so many programs uh, will be defunded while Donald Trump still goes on talk shows and says LGBTQ. So we have to focus in on that and, and expose that scam. As I wrote in my book, and as the title says, right, you have to live in the world if it's not over. Civil rights activists have had to live in that world. African Americans have had to live in that world since slavery. Uh, there are people who have struggled far more than we have. It's never really over because you're always defending rights when you're a minority or a marginalized group like women. You have to constantly live in the fight and you have to constantly be uh, on guard and as I say, and it's not over, guard against victory blindness. There's this idea that someday it's all done. One day it's all done. You win these set of rights and it's all finished. The moment that happens, it's gone. So I think you have to just reconfigure your life to live in the fight. Michelangelo Signorelli is a well-known activist, a serious radio show host, and author Hi, I'm Cleve Jones, and you are listening to This Way Out, the international LGBT radio magazine. An informed community is a strong community. There's got to be a morning after If we can hold Let's keep on looking for the light. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wendell Jones. We have one very smart woman with us, Karen Oakham, who is an award-winning Los Angeles area journalist. You've been covering LGBT issues for so long. What struck me the most, because I've talked to Michelangelo about this, uh, was his comments about victory blindness in the context of an ongoing civil rights struggle. So what came to my mind was um, keep your eye on the prize Mm -hmm. because, you know, that's been true for the African-American struggle, for the Latino struggle, uh, on and on and on, and it's true for us as well. I, like so many other people, 
you know, had this sucker punch. You yeah. know, I was so stunned and surprised because I expected one outcome and we wound up with Donald Trump. I know. How the hell did that happen? I've heard other people refer to this. They say it waking up or going to sleep Tuesday night, it felt like a death in the family. And I'm thinking, I've had family members die, and you're prepared for that. It's a natural process, and you get There's over this. There's some rules for how to deal with that yeah, in a weird like way. Yeah, this is like every single day you're going to be reminded. It happened. But, you know, think about actually how far we have come. I mean, you know, in the 50s where, you know, so many of these religious right people want to take us back to, that's make America great again. That's what they're thinking. It wasn't that great. I was there. Well, but... <laughs> You know, we had lobotomies, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, incarceration. I mean, that's what Stonewall was all about. I mean, so we have come so far. So we have to, you know, sort of grab that word pride and reconfigure it and wear it like a rainbow color coat again and, you know, have our heads up. And even if we trip and fall and trudge along, you know, nonetheless, We have achieved a lot. We've walked a lot. We've got a lot farther to go. But, you know, I don't want to see us kind of stuck. And, you know, when when he was talking about victory of blindness, yes, that happened. And now it's over. And now we need to say, okay, that was true. That happened. Now what? And what the now what is, is that we have to rethink everything. The Democratic Party is rethinking everything right now. And, you know, we do need to move forward. I've been thinking a lot about this, actually, and the way um, I have sort of translated it for me is kind of in a harm reduction model, you know, uh, in, in HIV. You know, you you meet people where they are, and then you try to, you know, um, sort of have mutual respect for each other right where you are. In this instance... My harm reduction model, my base of start is uh, Maya Angela's uh, poem uh, at the Clinton inauguration where she talked about just saying good morning mm. to the neighbor. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a simple place to start instead of, you know, coming on. Kindness doesn't mean not fighting. Well, that's exactly right. And, not, and nor having an agenda. If we are a movement about love. You know, saying good morning uh, without the disrespect, without the hatred, is is kind of disarming in some ways. (laughs) Here, on the pulse of this new day, you may have the grace to look up and out and into your sister's eyes and into your brother's face, your country, and say simply, very simply, with hope. Good morning. You know, this is this is ridiculous. Whatever happened to our humanity? That's what I mean about just saying good morning as a starting place to try to, you know, bring back to reclaim civility, reclaim decency, reclaim our humanity. Karen Oakham, an award winning Los Angeles area journalist. For This Way Out, I am Abby Dees. And I'm Wendell Jones. There's got to be a morning up. There's got to be a morning up. There's got to be a morning up. There's got to 
Thanks for choosing This Way Out, the international LGBT radio magazine. This week, Wenzel Jones and Abby Dees contributed program material, with thanks, as always, to Steve Pride, Sweet Honey in the Rock, Michael Callan, ACDC, and Maureen McGovern performed some of the music you heard, and Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This way, I'll thank the Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation, the Yavana Foundation, the estate of Christopher David Trentham, our contributing affiliate stations, and you, our listener supporters, who all make this program possible. Check out the latest show information, special offers, and more at thiswayout.org. If you'd like a CD copy of this week's show or just want to say hello, email TWORadio at AOL.com or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For associate producer Alicia Chappelle and everyone at This Way Out, I'm Greg Gordon. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org and on KAZU Pacific Grove, California, WERU Bangor and Blue Hill Falls, Maine, to RRR Gladesville, New South Wales, and more than 200 other stations around the world, including this community radio station. Stay tuned. I warned him that I had the scissors. When I initially pulled them out, I said, I have a weapon and I will use it. And he still decided to attack me. If I wasn't going to get shanked by a white person in the men's prison, I could have got shanked by a white person in the women's prison. Some people say the system is broken and it's not broken. It's doing exactly what it's created to do. Welcome to This Way Out, the international LGBT radio magazine. I'm Greg Gordon. The UN removes Russia from its Human Rights Council, Taipei Pride praises Taiwan's marriage proposal, and a black U.S. trans activist shares her story of survival. Those stories and more this week because you've discovered This Way Out. I'm Michael LeBeau. And I'm Sarah Sweeney. With NewsWrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending November 5th, 2016. Russia lost its seat on the United Nations Human Rights Council this week to Hungary and Croatia. Vladimir Putin's regime has come under increasing scrutiny in recent years over its human rights abuses, especially against sexual and gender minorities. Putin pushed for and signed a national law in 2013 that outlaws the dissemination of vaguely defined gay propaganda. The so-called no-promo-homo law has been used to shut down all pro-LGBT public events, including pride celebrations. Russia was running for re-election to the Human Rights Council in a three-way race for the two seats available to the Eastern European bloc. In a secret ballot by the entire UN General Assembly, Hungary received 144 votes and Croatia got 114 votes for the second seat to narrowly beat out Russia's 112. According to the New York Times, it's the first time a permanent member of the United Nations Security Council has lost a seat on the Human Rights Council, which was established in 2006 to strengthen 
the promotion and protection of human rights. Reuters reported that there was also behind-the-scenes lobbying against Russia's candidacy because of its military support for the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad. Nevertheless, other countries with poor human rights records won seats on the council. Saudi Arabia led the balloting in the Asian region, securing a seat alongside Iraq and China. Meanwhile, BuzzFeed News reported late this week that the recently created LGBT rights watchdog position at the UN could be eliminated before the end of the coming week. The position is formally known as a special rapporteur who's mandated to monitor violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. The office was created in June by the Human Rights Council. In September, the council's president announced that the post would be filled by Weetit Mantapan, a Thai law professor who has previously served as special rapporteur on North Korea. The resolution to undo the LGBT rights watchdog position was introduced in the General Assembly by Sierra Leone on behalf of the group of African states. It proposes to defer consideration of the creation of the post in order to allow time for further consultations to determine its legal basis. Opponents of LGBT rights, particularly from Africa and the Middle East, insist that sexual orientation and gender identity issues are not covered by international law. The resolution is scheduled for a vote by the entire UN General Assembly on November 8th. It only needs a simple majority, or 97 votes, to pass. A U.S. diplomat who spoke to BuzzFeed on the condition of anonymity called the vote hard to predict. A record crowd of more than 80,000 people celebrated LGBT pride in Taipei on October 29th. They were also celebrating the government's introduction on October 24th in Taiwan's legislature of one of three bills relating to civil marriage equality, which is supported by President Tsai Ing-wen. She was elected in January and made marriage equality one of the cornerstones of her campaign. The rainbow flag flew over Taipei City Hall for the first time to coincide with the Pride March. Legislators and key figures from all three major political parties marched in the parade. Each party, including the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, has introduced a marriage equality-related bill. The opening of civil marriage to same-gender couples in Taiwan would be a first in Asia. But more than 2,000 phone calls linked to the Protect Family Alliance, a coalition of conservative religious groups opposed to civil marriage equality, clogged the Taipei city government's hotlines to condemn the march. The self-identified Defender of Family Values group calls homosexuality a curable disease. Pride organizers called their phone call gambit a huge waste of government resources. In other news, Texas has led seven other Republican-dominated U.S. states and one far-right northeastern U.S. governor in a joint friend-of-the-court brief supporting Mississippi's so-called religious freedom law, thought to be the most blatantly anti-LGBT U.S. state law in recent memory. Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant signed the Religious Liberty Accommodations Act in April. Known as HB 1523, it allows anti-LGBT discrimination in any employment-related decision and any decision concerning the sale, rental, or occupancy of a dwelling, as long as that bias is based on sincerely held religious belief or moral conviction. The law specifies three such beliefs, that only heterosexual couples can marry, that sex is only permissible within heterosexual marriage, and that gender is immutable and determined at birth. 
Joining Texas in the front of the court brief at the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals are Arkansas, Louisiana, Nebraska, Nevada, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Utah, and Maine's writer-than-right Governor Paula Page. The Mississippi law was overturned by U.S. District Court Judge Carlton Reeves as unconstitutional in late June, literally hours before it was scheduled to take effect. Mississippi's Democratic Attorney General Jim Hood has refused to appeal that ruling, so Governor Bryant has hired private attorneys to represent the state in that effort. Some of them work for Alliance Defending Freedom, an Arizona-based conservative Christian legal group that helped write the measure. HB 1523 is among more than 100 anti-LGBT bills that have been considered in more than 20 Republican-controlled state legislatures across the country following the June 2015 U.S. Supreme Court civil marriage equality ruling. Elsewhere, the government in the Australian state of Queensland continues to advance LGBT rights. As our correspondent John Frame in Brisbane reported, age-of-consent laws involving consensual gay sex were made equal to those covering heterosexual sex last month after a 16-year campaign. And this week, although the vote was close, Queensland lawmakers passed a measure to allow same-gender couples to adopt children. The speaker cast the deciding vote. The new law also allows single people and couples undergoing fertility treatment to adopt. Opponents claim that there was an insufficient demand for adoption in the state and by implication that opening adoption to same-gender couples could deny some heterosexual couples an adoptive child. But Industrial Relations Minister Grace Grace spoke to Parliament as the mother of an adopted daughter during 90 minutes of sometimes heated debate. We should be encouraging more Queenslanders to adopt children, she argued, where they have a clear desire and a demonstrated ability to raise children in a loving family environment. That's exactly what I have done as the mother of a beautiful, wonderful, and absolutely loved adopted daughter, she added. And it's what many other Queenslanders want to do. South Australia and the Northern Territory are now the only parts of Australia where lesbian and gay couples are not allowed to adopt. And finally, a pioneering lesbian astronaut and a record-shattering out-gay Olympian were each honored in the U.S. this week. The U.S. Navy commissioned the research vessel Sally Ride in the port of San Diego, California, on October 28th. The 238-foot-long ship will be operated by the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where the scientist, teacher, and innovator worked for many years. The ship is designed to investigate Earth's oceans in an effort to solve some of the planet's environmental challenges. The research vessel Sally Ride is also the first Navy ship to be named for a woman. Ride, the first American woman in space, acknowledged her sexuality and decades-long relationship with Tam O'Shaughnessy in the obituary she authorized that was published soon after her death in 2012. And if you enjoy watching the colorful Rose Parade in Pasadena, California, as part of your New Year celebrations, keep an eye out for one of the three Olympian Grand Marshals. Multi-medal diving champ Greg Louganis will join fellow Olympic medalists Janet Evans and Allison Felix to lead the flowered procession down Colorado Boulevard on January 2nd. Louganis is thought to be the first proudly out LGBT person to be a Rose Parade Grand Marshal. He's considered the greatest American male Olympic diver of all time. He competed at the 1976 Games in Montreal, the 1984 Games in Los Angeles, and the 1988 Games in Seoul. With five total medals, four of them gold, he was the first man to sweep both diving categories in consecutive Olympics. 
Luganus came out publicly in 1995, married his husband, Johnny Shalliot, in 2013, and, as an HIV-positive gay man, is a tireless advocate for LGBT rights and HIV-AIDS awareness. He said he hopes his being named a Rose Parade Grand Marshal this week inspires people and that they know they are loved. The theme of the upcoming 128th Tournament of Roses Parade is Echoes of Success. That's News Wrap for the week ending November 5th, 2016. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Sarah Sweeney. And I'm Michael Lebeau. The Australian Senate on November 7th hammered the final nail into the coffin of a proposed national plebiscite on civil marriage equality. Legislation to enable the non-binding but mandatory public vote on the issue passed in the House, but as expected, it's been defeated in the Senate by a vote of 33 to 29. Labor, the Greens, and some key independent MPs combined to shoot down the proposal of Liberal Party Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's coalition government. Critics, including a significant majority of the public in national opinion polls, want a marriage equality bill to be passed in Parliament. The vote seemed to be there, but unless Turnbull allows his party MPs a free vote, something the PM has resolutely refused to do, it's anyone's guess if and when Australia will open civil marriage to its same-gender couples. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Greg Luganis. This is Janice Ian. And you're listening to This Way Out. You ain't gonna get this nowhere else. There's a hero If you look inside your heart You don't have to be afraid Of what you are There's an As a 13-year-old queer, black, homeless runaway on the streets of Chicago, Cece McDonald had no idea who she really was. But by her early 20s, she was an out-and-proud trans woman living in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and helping others turn their lives around. Refusing to become a victim, she was labeled a killer, only to become a folk hero. McDonald told this way out Steve Pride about the worst night of her life, how she came back from it, and what her story says about racism, transphobia, and the prison industrial complex. Take me back to the night of June 5th, 2011. 
We're walking down the street. We had first been approached by a cop who said that there was a complaint of us being too loud. We were walking down the street. How are we too loud? It was a Saturday night, and Schooners was like a couple of feet away. Schooners is a bar. Yeah, Schooners is where everything happened in front of. Once you get to Schooners, beyond that point, it's nothing but businesses and bars and restaurants and things like that. And I was going to the grocery store. Me and my boyfriend, we kind of trailed back to, like, talk about some things. So that left three people walking ahead of us. Probably five minutes after we started talking, my friends were walking, and then they began to walk back. Then I seen the other party yelling at them. I couldn't hear really what was being said until I got closer. When I did get closer, reality set in for me in a way that... I wasn't expecting it, especially the derogatory statements that were being made towards them. Things like, uh, you nigger babies, you need to go back to Africa, you don't belong here, you're nothing but men with dresses and we trick people and we're chicks with dicks and we only dress like this to trick men and some other things. I think you can get the point. At this point in my life, I was just trying to be more rational, less violent. The whole time that I was being homeless and up until that point, which at that time I had already moved into my apartment. And you were in school, right? Yeah. Same fashion? Yes. And I felt like I was in a pretty content place in my life. I wouldn't say I was the happiest, but I was definitely content to the point where I knew that I was comfortable. I now have my place. I can work on fixing my place up. And I was allowing some of my friends to stay there so they can get on their feet. And I was just, you know, a little house mom or whatever. (laughs) And I had to get some cat food. And my cousin wanted to get some food because she wanted to cook for the people of the house. My friends, Star and Zay, they wanted to go to the 90s. I'm pretty sure you know about the 90s, downtown Minneapolis. Yeah. So we all were headed the same way. And my boyfriend even decided to come with me. But back to the incident itself, uh, argument kind of ensued after that because once my boyfriend heard what was being said, he got really upset. And I was like, babe, let's just go. Like, it's not important. These people are clearly drunk. They were drinking outside of the bar, which by law is illegal. And also, there's a history of racist attacks there. When I was in jail, I've met some men of color who have been to that bar and was like, yes, I've had similar experiences of being called a nigger, being kicked out of the bar for retaliating against the racism and things like that. And we're not talking Coke cups. They were outside with bottles. They were outside with glassware. Molly Flaherty, who was the person who initially attacked me, had a glass tumbler that she still had liquor in. That's how she caught me off guard. The last words I can remember her saying is, I can take all of you bitches on. She threw her drink in my face. Then she smashed her glass in my face. I couldn't see what her next move was because once she threw the liquor in my eyes, it was burning. And then I started to feel like this really, really, really sharp stinging pain and I'm like this isn't just my eyes I knew she hit me but I didn't know that she hit me with something I was getting lightheaded and like the way that she 
hit me. It's a scar that's still there. I had to get 12 stitches in my face. And then I just got attacked. They all attacked me. She attacked me. She was grabbing me by my hair. She was trying to yank me to the ground. And from, like, dance and other, like, cheerleading, one thing I learned was how to plant my feet. And so she couldn't pull me down to the ground. So some of the other people tried to jump in and help her. And then that's when my friends and family jumped in. And it turned into a melee, as they say. Mind you, there were people literally standing around watching the whole fight. There were witnesses because there were people who gave testimony to the investigators. So to have these people just stand around and see this happen, to have been enjoying these people attacking us, then people from inside the bar was coming out and challenging us. And I told this to the investigators. There were people who weren't even connected to that group who was trying to fight us and didn't care that I was bleeding, didn't care that I was injured. One person even tried to grab me from the driver's side of their vehicle while they're driving past after the fight had broken up. So many components of that story that were kind of left out that people don't understand why I was in the state of mind that I was, then began to become outnumbered. And that's why they left before I did, because they were just like, Cece, come on. And they knew that it was starting to get serious and that all of these people could attack us. I'm still dealing with the pain of what just happened to me. I'm trying to run. And then they began to scream, Cece, come on. And at the same time, Cece turned around and I see Dean and he's coming after me. And I'm trying to walk backwards, but trying to get as close to them as possible. And it just seemed like they were so, so far away. This is Steve Pride and I'm talking to Cece McDonald. Where were the police then? The police still haven't been called. And mind you, I just told you about how the police stopped us earlier for a noise complaint and the police station was right across the street. It was just really, really frustrating that nobody was trying to help us. Nobody was trying to stop these people from attacking us. No one even tried to stop Dean from re-pursuing the fight and chasing after me. This person was intentionally trying to get me and he didn't care how he was going to get me. During the fight, he was literally hurling full beer bottles and he was aiming for my head. It was frightening. Why wouldn't I be in the state of mind to protect myself, especially after seeing this man trying to do serious damage to me? These aren't empty beer bottles. These are full beer bottles. And that's scary to think of how much damage that would do to me. You really didn't have a weapon with you. You had your fashion Right, person, you exactly. Had in your and, and I hate that the way that the media portrayed it as in if I had like a butcher knife in my person that I was this crazed murderer that they finally caught. I did what any person would do in a situation like that was defend themselves. Mind you, I'm only 5'7". This man was like 6'3", six, 6'4", six, a good 220, 230. How can I fight him? I just been smashed in the face with a cup. I've been jumped by a group of people. And he's not calming down. No, he wasn't calming down. And somebody even made a statement about how he was shuffling his feet like he was a boxer. Like, I remember all of that. I remember him trying to, like, knock my block off and him threatening me and a lot of the language that he used that wasn't allowed in court. Him calling me a black bitch and him steady calling me bitches and, you know, even to the point when he he got stabbed and he said you stabbed 
stabbed me, bitch. And I didn't think that a person that was seriously harmed would say something to me like that. And that's why I didn't know that the stab wound was as serious as it was. Because who says something like, you stabbed me, bitch, after they get stabbed? And I just was like, yes, I did. Because... I had to protect myself. And now that I think about it, I don't take any of that back. They tried to make me feel bad for saying, yes, I did, after he just said, you stabbed me, bitch. It wasn't intentional. I warned him that I had the scissors. When I initially pulled them out, I said, I have a weapon and I will use it. And he still decided to attack me. Well, when the police came, you were not, you didn't run. You were across the street in the yeah, parking lot. Yeah, I crossed the street. I didn't, I didn't know at that point what had happened because we were in a part of the parking lot where you can't see anything, but it was only probably 100 feet away from the bar. How did they treat you when they came up? The first thing that they did when they got out of their car was drew their guns. Then they handcuffed me. They put me in the back of the squad car, mind you. I'm still bleeding. Did they ever acknowledge you as a victim? No. Never, not once. They had a scenario already in their mind they would yeah. fit you into. Hi, I'm Krishan McDonald, a.k.a. CC McDonald, and you're listening to This Way Out, the international radio show for all diverse communities. Tell me about your prison experience. I got sentenced June 4th, 20. 12. And you took a plea deal. Yes, I took a plea deal because at that point I just figured that there was no way that I was going to beat murder charges in a jury that was majority white. It was kind of hard knowing what was going to happen to me. But I tell people all the time, like, I'd rather have dead 41 months than 41 years. And when I initially got to prison, the first thing they did was threw me in solitary confinement. For your own protection. Yeah, prison policies around trans and queer and gender. And we're not talking Orange is New Black here. You went to a men's prison. Exactly. But it wouldn't matter what prison I went to that I would still endure the same type of treatments. And it's because it's based off of gender binary that I was going to still have to deal with the racism or the sexism or the violence if I wasn't going to get shanked by a white person in the men's prison, I could have got shanked by a white person in the women's prison, right? There would have been no safety for me in either space. It doesn't matter what prison I went to. I hate that I had to experience that. And so, and 2.2 million people have to experience it, the prison population in general. So, Do you become a real prison abolitionist? Is yes, abolitionist. I'm very against the existence of prisons. You have those that believe in prison reform, and I'm totally against that. Also, I just feel like there are ways in which we can handle a society that doesn't capitalize because it's all about capitalism, that doesn't capitalize off the bodies of those who have been criminalized and demonized and prosecuted in a way in which they keep continuing to be put into these systems. I want to jump to your release. You had so much support to get you out of there. Uh Did that surprise you how big the movement became? It did, actually. I didn't understand why people cared about my story. I knew that there were so many cases like minds of women who 
went through what I went through. And also at that time was when the Trayvon Martin case happened and when the Marissa Alexander case happened. People made comparisons of our cases and really seeing how certain laws are only beneficial for certain people in society. I think that's what drove people even harder was that they were seeing these things in the public gaze and people were beginning to see the system Some people say it's broken, and it's not broken. It's doing exactly what it's created to do, to target the marginalized people, to target people of color, to target the LGBTQI community. But as far as this, for me, I I was definitely shocked, knowing that trans women have died because of this, that trans women are in prison right now because of this. And I began to have this guilt factor for myself, knowing that I had all of this support and that so many people like me don't get it. And I think that's what also drives me to do the work that I do because I want to be the voice for those who can't have a voice, who's behind bars and can't have that voice or have that platform or have that support. This has been a conversation with Cece McDonald. She was released from prison in 2014 after serving 19 months of her 41-month sentence. Today, Cece is not just a survivor, she's a leader. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. co-sponsor of the Dookie Jam, Thursday, December 1st at 10 p.m. at Dante's in Portland. The Dookie Jam is a funk jam session that happens monthly at Dante's. Lots of funky treats for your eyes and ears, including live streaming video on Audio Globe and live streaming audio on the cable website. Again, that's Dookie Jam, Thursday, December 1st at 10 p.m. at Dante's, 350 West Burnside in Portland. This is a 21 and over event. More information about the performance and schedule can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio is proud to sponsor the Elysian Brewing Breakbeat IPA KBOO Benefit on December 8th at the Liquor Store Bar and Venue in Portland. KBOO and Elysian Brewing will celebrate the release of the Manic IPA series with hip-hop, funk, and electronica spun by the Pariahs, DJ Dakimba, and Vinology. Again, that's Elysian Brewing Breakbeat 